Hello and welcome to episode 12 of Healthy Debates, part of a series of podcasts brought to you by the UK's best-selling women's wellbeing magazine, Healthy. I'm your host and editorial director, Ellie Hughes. Today we're looking at the huge topic of nutrition to tie in with our You Are What You Eat issue of Healthy magazine. There are a lot of confusing, challenging and often conflicting messages about what we should and shouldn't eat out there. So we've brought in our own nutrition expert, Carrie Ruxton, to help bust the biggest myths around nutrition and set the science straight around what makes a good diet. As well as reviewing all the nutrition content we run in Healthy Magazine, Carrie is an award-winning dietitian, TV nutritionist and writer. Carrie has a PhD in child nutrition and runs her own consultancy, Nutrition Communications, in St Andrews. If you like the sound of all of that, Remember, you can pick up the latest copy of Healthy Magazine in your local Holland and Barrett store and on selected newsstands across the country. Or head over to healthy-magazine.co.uk to get your online fix. Hello, Carrie. Welcome to the Healthy Podcast. Great to have you today with us. Hello. I just want to jump straight in with what's probably um, one of the most controversial issues in terms of nutrition and definitely something that's very close to my own heart and many other people's, and that's bread and potatoes and pasta, aka carbs. So they've become increasingly demonized recently, partly due to the huge success of diets like keto, which promote eating a lot of kind of so-called healthy fats and really reducing carbs very dramatically. Um, having said that, carbs obviously remain a key part of the government's eat well plate, which says they should make up about a third of our diet. So, so what's right? What's your view? Well, definitely carbs shouldn't be demonised, but it really depends on what kind of um, person or patient you are talking about. When I first started hearing about low-carb diets as a dietitian, I was very instinctively cautious and said, mm, not too sure about this, there wasn't enough evidence. Now there actually is a lot of evidence on, um, on low-carb diets, and I would say that it very much depends on what you're trying to achieve and what uh, other conditions you have. So for for example, um, for uh, epilepsy in children which doesn't respond to um, medicines, um, ketogenic diets, which are the very, very low-carb diets uh, where you basically burn um, fat, um, can benefit the symptoms in those children. So that is like a, a medical use of those types of diets. Then when you look at carbohydrates, the interesting thing is, is that there is no definition for low carb at all. So studies in people with diabetes have found that limiting carbs, not cutting them out and not going for keto, um, can actually benefit people with diabetes. Um, this is type 2 diabetes and help them control their blood sugar levels. And in many cases, uh, gradually with their doctors, reduce their medication. So I'm now coming around to the view that uh, people with type 2 diabetes who are overweight um, might want to consider this kind of diet, um, and, but they don't need to go too low. I think that's the most important thing because if you go down to keto, you're talking about a very extreme diet that is cutting out a lot of foods and you literally won't get invited to parties anymore because it's just a really, you have to, you have to do things like drink double cream. So it's not a normal diet. So you do um, benefit from cutting carbs, but it doesn't have to be extreme. 
Okay. So are there any other risks then involved in cutting those carbs? Yes, yes, there is definitely um, fibre. So a lot of the best sources of fibre in the diet come from carbohydrate foods. I also should mention, because a lot of people want to go low carb for weight loss, that the studies show that uh, up to six months, you will get an advantage from cutting carbs. Again, not zero or, or very low, just sort of cutting to a moderate level. But after one year, the people on the high carb and the low carb diets were doing about the same in terms of weight loss. So I think for weight loss, there is no huge benefit to cutting carbs, but there is for diabetes and blood sugar control for people that are starting to have, um, we we call it pre-diabetes. So they have a predisposition to diabetes. Okay. So when you say cutting carbs, but not dramatically, Uh, Give me an idea of kind of what that that would be. Well, I would think it would be something like having a a, a low GI type carb for breakfast. Uh, Low GI is when these carbohydrates are absorbed slowly in the body because of their structure. So you'd be talking about something like porridge oats or um, a a bran flake type cereal or a, a high fiber muesli. So something that's going to get absorbed slowly by the body, not your cocoa pops or something like that. Um, have have a high fiber um, carbohydrate breakfast, obviously eat fruit and vegetables. These contain carbohydrates and perhaps at the evening meal, um, just skip the carbs on that. So have uh, meat uh, or fish uh, or a vegetarian alternative and your your veggies with it. So kind of big up on the veggies on your evening meal and don't have the potatoes or pasta, but perhaps have it for lunch and have it for your breakfast. So that's a very kind of well-balanced, healthy, kind of doable, practical guide to how people can eat carbs. Because there's a lot of misunderstanding about what carbs actually are, I think. People don't realise quite how big a category of food they are. Yes, absolutely. And um, uh, I was actually, I've just returned from the uh, a major European uh, nutrition conference in Dublin, where there was an amazing professor, Astrup from Denmark, who was speaking. And hot off the press, he actually says, if you've got normal blood sugar levels, you're not diabetic, a high carb diet is absolutely fine. But go for these uh, slowly absorbed carbohydrates. So basically watch out on things like the, the sugar sweetened drinks, um, the, the cakes, biscuits, confectionery, these kind of fast carbohydrates, just take care on those. If you are have a tendency to diabetes in your family or if you know because your doctor's told you that you don't handle uh, your blood glucose that well, then he's suggesting a medium carbohydrate, high protein diet. And if you're already diabetic and you're overweight or obese, then go for the low carb, high protein. So it was really, so that is literally hot off the press this week. Okay, great. So just kind of to take you back to one of the points you made about about fats and kind of the keto diet and recommending drinking kind of pints of double cream. Now, this obviously seems kind of contrary to everything we've ever been taught about healthy eating and, and weight loss. I know there's a huge debate around fats and is there such a thing as a healthy fat? Should we be going low fat? What, what's the truth about fats? 
Well, again, the truth about fats is that we we used to lump them all together, that fat was fat, and now we know that we've got different types of fatty acids which can have different effects in the body. We all know that saturated fat uh, tends to have a an inflammatory uh, cholesterol-raising effect, um, whereas the other fats are, uh, have less of a, of a negative effect and actually can be beneficial. So if you think about olive oil or um, the, nuts, the nut fats and also the oily fish-type fats, um, but we even now know that the saturated fats are not all one group either. So, for example, there's been some positive research done in dairy fats um, that those are not as harmful as things like um, the fats in palm oil um, and some of, and some of the fats in, in meat and um, and butter. Um, so, from from my perspective, I don't think we need to fear fat. I think we should aim towards foods that have a lower fat content. The reason being is that um, we don't have such an impact on our appetite when we eat fat. So people can easily overconsume calories when they have fi- high f- uh, fat foods. Um, and that's because fat is very energy dense. So we get nine calories for every gram of fat, but only four uh, calories for every gram of protein or carbohydrate. So you're adding in extra calories uh, for the same volume. And some of these uh, fatty acids, uh, as I say, can um, promote inflammation in the body and also increase your um, your blood lipid, your blood fat levels. Um, but the thing is, it's, it's all about not necessarily going low fat and buying low fat products. It's about saying, I'm going to have more of the healthier fats. So more of the vegetable fats, the olive oil, the nuts and the seeds and the oily fish. And if you make room for these in your diet first before you go to some of the others. So if I'm in the supermarket and I'm looking at getting a butter or a low fat spread, what what should I do? I think that actually, because both of them are still high in fat um, overall, I would just pick which one you like best. So for example, okay. I personally prefer the taste of butter. I will eat butter, but I will not have tubs and tubs of the stuff. Okay. I love butter too. So I'm, I'm very pleased yeah. to hear you say that, although I do limit it to the yeah, weekend. And so I, that's and kind I of cook, my little treat to myself. Yeah. And I cook with rapeseed oil and I put olive oil on my salads. So it's just about yeah. having that balance. But I mean, if you love the taste of the low fat spreads, there's nothing wrong with them. Just have them. Um, but if you really, really like butter, I don't think you should give it up. Just have a much smaller amount. Okay, great. So another super hot topic of the moment, veganism. So if I wanted to, I could go out today and buy a vegan sausage roll for my lunch or a vegan ready meal down the road at the local kind of supermarket. And that wouldn't have been the case probably even a year ago. It's been a really kind of quick growth and popularity for veganism. Leaving aside the environmental issues around whether or not to go vegan, not because they're not important, just because that's not really the focus of our conversation today. From a health point of view, should we be going vegan or, or or what? No, I don't believe we should. And I actually have a lot of concerns about a, a mass move to veganism. For those people who are vegan because they passionately believe that animals shouldn't be harmed in any way and they won't wear leather shoes or use leather handbags and their whole lifestyle is is vegan, I have huge respect for people like that. People who say, um, oh, I'm a bit worried about meat and fish and eggs from a, a health perspective 
perspective or even an environmental perspective, I'm going to go vegan. And they very rarely think it through properly. They just sort of dash out and buy the vegan ready meals and cut all the animal products out of their diet. I have a lot of worries about that because the vegan diet is extremely hard to balance. You're basically taking out a large amount of foods that are nutrient rich. So they are full of vitamins, minerals, uh, particular types of fatty acids in the case of oily fish that, that we know are beneficial to humans and that we know humans have actually adapted over hundreds of thousands of years to consume because we are omnivores. We are naturally omnivores. Our guts, our teeth, everything is screaming omnivore. And so to suddenly go strict vegan, you will not need to make huge adaptations to your your diet, your food purchasing, your cooking, everything is going to have to move in that direction. And I simply just don't believe that most people are going to do that. Um, so I would say if you want to have more plants in your diet and be more plant-based flexitarian, by all means do that because you're still not entirely cutting out the animal food groups. Um, I think from a health perspective, you can have a super healthy diet eating a variety of foods, including uh, meat, fish and eggs. And it's all about choosing the right types of those products. And I would say cooking them at home so that you're not relying on these heavily processed foods. So for those people who really, really do want to go vegan or who are vegan, who absolutely believe in it fundamentally, I'm guessing you might suggest that supplementation would be a way to go. And, and if so, what supplements would they need? Yeah, that's right. And I would also say, be, before, even before you get to supplementation, think it through carefully, chat to a friend who's already been vegan for a while, join the vegan or vegetarian society, buy a good cookbook and make sure that you are um, buying these alternatives to the meat, fish and eggs um, so that you are uh, making up those nutrients. And also using things like fortified foods and fermented foods foods, which also supply nutrients. Um, at the end of the day, if you're strictly vegan, you're going to uh, miss out on some of the nutrients in the diet, uh, things like B12. Vitamin D will be hard to get in wintertime um, and things like iodine as well. So even the Vegan Society recommends a supplement uh, of those nutrients. I think they also have selenium in theirs as well. You might be a bit low on iron, so it's worth just getting that checked out after a while um, if you're starting to feel uh, tired or losing concentration um, because the iron in things like spinach is far less well absorbed than the iron in red meat. Um, you get iron in beans and pulses as well. Um, so I think that it's kind of that three-step process of thinking it through, um, speaking to people, including organisations, getting a decent cookbook and then having very targeted supplementation. Okay, great. So another buzzword, gut health. Um, we're hearing a, a lot about gut health now and how having a healthy gut is really kind of key to our, our overall health, including our mental health and emotional health, as well as our physical health. But what, what does that mean, really? How do I know if I've got a healthy gut, I can't see it? And specifically, what do I need to eat or, or take to help me have that healthy gut? Yeah, I mean, gut health is such an amazing topic. It, it, for me, it's it's been a revelation because we, we always used to think the gut was this sort of inert tube that just 
processed your food into poo. You know, it was just, it wasn't <laughs> doing anything useful. But the more we learn about it, I mean, it, it, some people have called it a second brain. And I actually think that's that's fair enough because the, the gut uh, contains these um, this colony of bacteria, almost like a the population of a city. It's very varied. It's unique to every single person. It changes over the course of uh, months and years from, from infanthood to elderly years. Your gut will go through amazing changes. And uh, the gut actually produces hormones. It helps with the absorption of our nutrients. It um, it, it influences um, the way that we uh, deal with calories, fat and protein. And it can even uh, produce uh, neurotransmitters which end up in our brain. So, I mean, it's, it's a fantastic organ and we need to look after it far better. What we can do is feed it fibre because... Um, the gut bacteria down there, they don't get a lot of action if we're having quite a processed <laughs> diet that um, that everything gets absorbed in the small intestine, which is the top half of your gut. Uh, so there's very little actually coming down to the large intestine. So you will then gravitate your bacteria towards the less healthy, helpful species. But if you can whack in lots of fruit and vegetables and whole grains um, and uh, things like um, polyphenols, which are the, the plant compounds that you get in colourful um, fruit and vegetables, uh, you know, things, and also things like soya, orange juice, um, even a glass of red wine. Um, these polyphenols actually don't get absorbed in the small intestine largely, so they end up down below where the bacteria are. Um, we can also have probiotics, which are these um, drinks that contain the lactobacillus and bifidobacteria, which are the particularly help, helpful strains, and those uh, can also get through to the large intestine. So it's just about recognising and making friends with your large intestine and your healthy bacteria and uh, trying to promote them. Okay. And I know you talked there kind of about fiber and fruits and vegetables. Another thing that we've seen recently is kind of um, fruit being slightly demonized, people leaving that out of their diets because they feel that's too sugary and it's become part of the whole kind of uh, concern around sugar conversation has broadened to take in fruit. What's your feeling about that? Do we need to limit the kind of amount of grapes and pineapple we have every day or, or are we being unnecessarily kind of cautious? Yeah, I think I, I think it is what I would call a sugar hysteria. Um, we saw it in the 70s with the publication of Pure White and Deadly and we're seeing it again now where it's this very reductionist view of just focusing on one single nutrient. So it was fat for a while and now it's sugar and everyone is hysterical about sugar and worrying about even um, you know fairly healthy foods on balance that do contain sugar. I mean, nobody ever got fat and, and ill from eating uh, fruit and yogurts, uh, drinking fruit juice or uh, having breakfast cereals with a bit of sugar in them. Nobody gets ill from that. They get ill because they're not exercising and they're eating uh, a large amount of what I would call discretionary foods because I hate the word junk food. Um, but, you know, foods that are treats and we don't want to eat them too often. Actually, if, we, if you count up all the sugar-sweetened uh, drinks, um, fizzy drinks and alcohol, cakes, biscuits, confectionery and crisps, that shockingly makes up 25% of our daily calorie level. 
So really, we shouldn't uh, stress and get worried about um, the small amounts of sugar in uh, quite a lot of these natural foods like, you know, dried fruit, uh, grapes, pineapple, um, a glass of orange juice, a breakfast cereal, a yogurt. What we should be doing is looking at the, the big ones in our diet, the, the, the big food groups that are bringing a lot of the excess calories, sugar, and don't have a lot of other nutrients in them. So let's not be hysterical about sugar anymore. Let's look at our diet as a whole. Let's look at the balance of our diet and the actual foods that we're eating and saying, is that a good variety? Is that a good balance? So you mentioned a glass of fruit juice. Yes. Um, fruit juice and smoothies as well are still really popular with the health crowd, I would say. I mean, I was definitely at a spa over the weekend. I don't usually go, but I happened to be at one this weekend where I was being given smoothies left, right and centre. I mean, are they okay, smoothies, kind of in, in balance or, or are they sort of a, tr a treat really? No, I mean, I, I think they're a, a daily thing you can have, but I think what we're trying to do is not have people say, I can't be bothered eating fruit and vegetables, I'll just drink it. Um, these, uh, you know, obviously once you start disrupting um, the, the natural uh, fruit and creating juice or smoothies out of it, it will have a less effect on appetite. So if you were to eat, uh, I mean, a glass of juice, for example, 150 mils, which is the recommended portion size in the UK, is about uh, one and a half to two oranges. It's not six oranges like some people have been writing in the media. It's 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 one to two um and if you were to eat two oranges, obviously that would have a different effect on your appetite than drinking a small glass of orange juice. So we don't want people to be rushing out there drinking a litre. But if you have one glass a day of a juice or a smoothie, you're basically giving yourself an extra portion of fruit. You've got a lot of the nutrients in there, vitamin C, folate, potassium, and these polyphenols that I was telling you about that have a beneficial effect on the gut and also the heart. So you're doing a good thing for yourself, but just limit it to a glass. Then it, then it isn't a risk. It doesn't push your blood sugar levels up. This idea that um, I saw a paper in the press a few months ago saying, Eat, drinking juice causes diabetes. No, it doesn't. There are three meta-analyses, which are these great big um, uh, analyses of studies showing it has no impact. So just one glass a day, no risk is going to give you some benefit. And then what about things like refined carbs? So I'm thinking kind of white bread, bagels, white pasta. I mean, are they they're often included within the kind of sugar hysteria conversation. Is is that right that they should be limited? Because, you know, we hear all these things about cornflakes, the equivalent of having eight teaspoons of sugar. Or are we okay to have those again kind of as part of a balanced diet? I think, yes, they can be included in a balanced diet, but I would try to shift to the higher uh, fibre versions. And the reason is something to do with the glycemic index. The glycemic index is how fast our bodies can process these foods into blood sugars, because everything carbohydrate will end up in your blood sugar as glucose. Um, so it doesn't matter whether it is an apple or a, a, a piece of confectionery, you know, some jelly snake or something, uh, or a, a breakfast cereal or potato or pasta or rice, 
All of these carbohydrates uh, are, are made up of long chains of sugars all joined together. Our body will break them down. It will end up as glucose. But the important thing is, how quickly does that happen? And how high do our blood sugars rise after we've eaten these? And um, a professor called Jenny Brand in Australia actually developed this index called the glycemic index and also something called the glycemic load, which takes into account the portion size. And that shows us what impact we can expect on our blood sugars when we eat these kinds of foods. So things like white bread are actually pretty high. They score around about 70. And a sugary drink, like a fizzy drink, will be about 65. Um, and uh, your fruit juice will be about 50. Your, your piece of fruit will be 35 to 45 and your pasta will actually be about 30. So uh, you can see that depending on what you choose in the diet in terms of carbs, you will get a different effect on blood sugars. Now we don't want blood sugars to be going up and down non-stop so that's about frequency of intake how often you're eating those carbs how often you're snacking and also the volume that you're having and the glycemic index so yes, have the odd bit of white bread now and again but it's actually much better to go for the whole grain it's better to go for the brown rice rather than the white rice um, and even just by mixing some of your carbs as well so for example if you had beans on toast because baked beans have got a lower glycemic index that's going to bring down the whole GI of that meal so I think it's about going for more of the whole grain options and watching your portion size and your frequency Okay, so picking up on something you said about kind of frequency of eating, I mean, intermittent fasting, kind of the fast diet, the 5-2 diet, that came in, you know, a few years ago now with Dr. Mosley and his 5-2 diet where you kind of ate what you wanted five days a week and then two days a week really tightly restricted your calories and that was a huge sensation, really kind of captured a lot of people's imagination and a lot of people really swore by it. That's kind of evolved now to lots of different ideas about how fasting or intermittent fasting can work and be healthy, um, both for general health and, and for weight loss. Kind of what, what's your view really on, on fasting and do you recommend it? And if so, how? I think going back a step, I would say for people that are trying to manage their weight, don't think about going on a diet, think about changing your lifestyle because we have, um, study after study showing that no matter which diet people follow to lose weight, most people will regain their weight again. And that's because they see a diet for, for weight management as a, a fad, a short-term thing that happens for a, a few days, months, or, or even just even up to a year. So I'd try to get away from that and think about a, a step change in your whole lifestyle, which obviously has to involve uh, physical activity as well. When it comes to fasting, the reason why some form of fasting works is simply because you're reducing your overall calorie level. Now, if you're the kind of person who has a, a largely erratic lifestyle, you may be really busy at work, you may be full on with family and other commitments, and you know that you're not going to make your home cooked meals every single day and everything is going to be under your control, something like a fasting type diet is probably a good thing to do because it fits in with your lifestyle. You know, you might have a couple of days because you're at meetings and things that you're eating more than you planned. So you can kind of restrict when you are at home and things are under your control. 
control. I personally prefer the 16.8 version where you have a longer fast period and you're not doing this kind of 5-2 with eating what you want and then heavily restricting um, because the 16 hours of fasting help your metabolism almost like readjusts itself. So every time you eat, you produce um, insulin to cope with the, the, um, the carbohydrates in the diet and you will get fats released into the blood from, from the fat in the diet. And your kind of metabolism is having to work hard all the time. And if you can give it this 16 hour break, you will get weight loss and uh, you, you will help your metabolism almost readjust. Uh, and then you're eating for eight hours a day. So you're kind of going for the healthier options, but you don't have to worry about portion size. You just eat for your eight hours, fast for your 16. I think that's actually a better option in terms of dietary balance than this idea that you can eat whatever you like, you know, including junk food and things, five days, and then you have to have this heavily restricted, I think it is sometimes down to four or 500 calories for the two days. To me, that seems very extreme. You're not retraining yourself and in those five days, goodness knows what you're eating. So I would say, yes, fasting does work, intermittent fasting. Um, it depends on your lifestyle, depends what you're able to stick to. But I would think that the the 16-8 version is probably a bit kinder on your body and helps to retrain you to a better diet. That's really good to hear, actually, because I'm just currently debating whether or not to do 16-8 and really make the effort. I find it easier to stick to myself. If I'm away on a few business trips and I've, I've overeaten a little bit, I'll just use it to correct, you know, a couple of kilos of weight um, and then go, you know, go do what I normally do then. I'm interested, though, that really you keep bringing it back to calories. So calories seem like they've fallen out of favour. People don't discuss them very often. But actually, a lot of your answers have really come back to this is just another way of reducing calories or controlling the calories that we take on board. Yes, that's right. I mean, we, the biggest health problem we have from a nutritional perspective in this country is overweight and obesity, where we now have six in 10 adults and between two and three in 10 children, depending on their age, who have a weight issue. And that will affect their, um, their, their life expectancy, their health later in life, risk of heart disease and cancer. So it's something that we really need to get to grips with. And I think because we don't want to um, upset or offend people who are overweight, we're conscious of their feelings, which of course we should be. It's not something that we talk about a lot. Um, but the WHO actually did some interesting work looking at um, things like sugar and found that the, the impact of sugar on body weight was all to do with the calories. And there have been studies done, uh, there's one um, favorable, um, kind of remarkable one in America where this uh, nutrition professor said, look, it's all about calories and to prove it, I'm going to have a thousand calories a day of Twinkies, which are some revolting donut thing <laughs> that you can buy mm -hmm. over there. And he basically ate Twinkies and junk food um, for several weeks uh, on a kind of a sample size of one himself. And he lost weight. And he just said, look, it isn't, you know, that the, the fat calories and the, the uh, protein and um, uh, carbohydrate calories all behave differently in the body. They all behave exactly the same. The difference is, is that the impact it has on our behavior and our food choice 
and uh, and how hungry we are. You know, so if you go for something that's, you know, lots of fibre and protein, it will make you feel fuller quicker and for longer. Uh, whereas if you go for a heavily processed, um, you know, white white carbs, um, you will um, get f- uh, you will get filled up relatively quickly, but then shortly after you'll be hungry again. So really, a calorie is a calorie. So if you're trying to manage your weight or even um, not put on weight, I mean, I'm I'm in my fifties now, um, menopause is drawing near and I find it is increasingly hard um, to maintain my body weight. You know, it, it just creeps up and I exercise about five times a week. So I'm conscious that because of my changing age and changing body, I'm now just having to be a little bit more careful. But it really does come down to calories at the end of the day in terms of, of weight, um, but the type of food in terms of appetite. And I wanted to ask you more generally about supplementation. So we've also talked about vegans and where they may need to to do that because of things they are obviously omitting from their diets. What about for kind of the general population and also specific groups like pregnant women or children? You know, this kind of love we all have for processed foods. Is it creating a kind of general need for us to supplement a bit more because we're not getting the nutrients we might otherwise get from from kind of what we would call real food? Yes, I would say it does. And I feel sad about that because as a dietitian, it's theoretically possible if you ate the diet that was recommended. We have the the Eat Well Guide in the UK, which is a a fantastic resource and and very clear and visual, um, giving us guidance on our food groups. So if we followed something like the Eat Well Guide, um, we theoretically should be able to get all the nutrients that we need from a healthy, balanced diet. But when we look at the surveys in the UK, we find that the majority of people are not following that diet diet. They're eating very little whole grain foods and fibres. They're hardly ever eating oily fish. Their, their fruit and vegetable consumption is low. So we should be having five a day and most people have an average two to three. So if we can try to do better and um, uh, and try to improve our diets, then of course we don't need supplements. But um, many people, for whatever reason, um, cannot improve or won't improve their diets. Uh, so the choices you're left with is do you accept that they will then have a low level of nutrients. Personally, as a dietitian, I would say, well, no, I'm happy to go to the next stage, which is fortified foods and supplements. So I'm I'm quite happy for people to eat a fortified breakfast cereal, um, a yogurt that's got vitamin D added, um, and to take take a supplement. Um, for the general population, I think if they feel that they need a supplement, then something like a, an ordinary multivitamin, multimineral is a good idea. For people who are planning a pregnancy or if they have a risk that they might get pregnant, I would say get on to that folic acid. Because we know from the surveys that um, in the UK at the moment, more than 90% of women of childbearing age have got very low folate, uh, sorry, folic acid levels, uh, you know, folate levels in their blood um, and um, and that actually puts their babies at risk of uh, neural tube uh, disorders, things like spina bifida. Now, the UK at some point may look at um, fortifying flour with folic acid as many other countries do, but we're not at that stage yet. So take it into your own hands. If there is any chance that you might become pregnant, um, then get on to a, a daily folic acid supplement. Now, the reason I was sort of stumbling over folate and folic acid is the same nutrient. It's just in natural foods like uh, colourful fruits and vegetables and green uh, vegetables, uh, you will get folate. Um, and if you go for a supplement, 
supplement or a, a fortified breakfast cereal, it will be folic acid, which is the, the supplemental version. But they, they do exactly the same. For um, another thing to think about in pregnancy is vitamin D, um, because 25% of people on average um, are vitamin D deficient. So they don't have enough levels in their blood to support normal bone health. Um, if you are somebody who spends a lot of time indoors or you cover your skin for religious or cultural reasons, it's worth taking a vitamin D supplement all year round. I live in Scotland where in the winter and spring it's pretty dark. Um, so I take a vitamin D supplement from about October onwards right through to about April. Um, for older people, um, vitamin D is important. Also, I would say B vitamins. There's some evidence that having um, good levels of B vitamins in the diet and in the blood helps cognitive function. And I would also say for um, middle-aged onwards, think about your omega-3 intake. So these are um, fatty acids that you get in oily fish and they are very helpful for supporting heart health. Um, so if you, unless you're eating fish twice a week, uh, one of which should be oily, you may be lacking omega-3s. You can get vegetarian and vegan supplements of these. It's actually made from algae. So that's, so I, I would say it's kind of horses for courses. We don't need to mass medicate, um, but it's something for people to consider on an individual basis and also depending on life circumstances. The government also recommends that children under five have a vitamin ACD supplement. Okay, that's great, Kay. That's that's really useful common sense and, and very informed insight there that I think we can all, all act on quite easily, actually. Just as a kind of final wrap-up question, kind of what, if there's one message you wanted to get out to people, people from who you see in your clinic or that you read about, what would be the one message you want to get across to people about kind of good nutrition? I think it's about realism and looking at your own circumstance. We're too influenced often by celebrities and, and fashion and fad. These are things that uh, get us excited for a short period of time. We try it and we fail and then we feel bad about it. So I would say to people, look at your diet now, maybe go and see a dietitian if you want or uh, consult uh, some of the excellent online resources such as the Eat Well Guide and an NHS um, website as well. Um, British Nutrition Foundation is also quite good. So have a look at that, have a look at your diet and then maybe just pick three things that you could improve. Maybe it's eating more fruit and veg, maybe it's having whole grains instead of the, the white versions. Um, maybe it's saying I'll take vitamin D in winter time uh, or have a morning glass of orange juice. Just pick some things that you know you can stick to and then put those into practice. Great advice. Thank you, Carrie, for joining us on the Healthy Podcast today. Thank you for your time and your insights. Thank you. And um, have a great day. If you want to find out more about Carrie, her website is nutrition-communications.co.uk. And remember, you can pick up the latest copy of Healthy magazine in your local Holland and Barrett store and on selected newsstands across the country. Thanks for listening, everyone, and we'll see you next time when we'll be talking about how to Christmas-proof your relationship with the divorce coach, Sarah Davison.